All right, well, let's um, turn in our Bibles to Ephesians 4, verse 5. We're going to talk tonight uh, about baptism. So uh, we are, in our study of basic Christian doctrine, we are on the doctrine of the church. And at the beginning of that part of our study, we talked about what a church is, right? We said a church is... Um, a body of believers that has gathered together for the purposes of you know, preaching the word and observing the ordinances. Um, and there are two ordinances, remember, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So a church is a body of believers who comes together so that for the word to be preached and for those commands of Jesus to baptize and to observe the Lord's Supper to be fulfilled. So we need to talk about what those two ordinances are, what baptism is, what the Lord's Supper is, how they are to be observed, uh, what their place is in the church, those kinds of things. So um, tonight and Lord willing, next week we will talk about baptism and then uh, move on to the Lord's Supper. Um, There are two main views of baptism, at least two that we're going to talk about, uh, two that you're most likely to hear about. And uh, those are the, the theological names for those are credo baptism and pedo baptism. So credo baptism, you can hear in the word credo, creed is what something you believe. Credo means believer's baptism, and that's what Baptist churches practice, as well as uh, probably some non-denominational churches and, and so on. Um, but a lot of churches, uh, a lot of Protestant churches, uh, practice paedo-baptism, uh, and that means child or infant baptism. All right, so um, <clears throat> those two, uh, those are the two major views, uh, major practices uh, when it comes to baptism, and we're going to talk mainly about credo-baptism tonight, the baptism of believers, and next time talk about um, paedo-baptism. Obviously, we're in a Baptist church. I'm a Baptist preacher. There's not really any question about which view we hold or which one we think is most biblical. Um, But like we talked about last week, we talked about theological triage, right, that there are are first-order doctrines that all Christians agree on. There are second-order doctrines that we need to agree on inside of a church body in order to function in a healthy way and be united. And then there are third-order doctrines that you can be in the same church and disagree about, and it doesn't make any difference, right? So um, baptism, how you practice baptism, is a second-order doctrine. It's important for you to be agreed on uh, how that works inside of of a particular local church. But how you practice baptism, at least as far as you baptize believers or baptize infants, uh, that does not uh, determine whether or not you're a Christian, right, or whether or not you're a biblical church. Um, We don't say that Presbyterians aren't Christians because they baptize infants, and they don't say that Baptists aren't Christians because we only baptize believers. Uh, We don't say that we're, you know, the other one is a false church or whatever. Uh, We just each believe the other one's wrong. Uh, But we love each other, and we agree on the gospel, at least most Baptist churches and most Presbyterian churches, but there are exceptions to that too. So um, uh, the practice, though, of doing baptism at all um, 
in a sense, is a first-order issue. Um, and, and I say that not, be, not to say that you have to practice baptism to be saved. You don't have to, nobody has, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. But all Christians practice some form of baptism, right? So if you went to a church and they said, we believe in Jesus and we believe the Bible is true, but we don't baptize people ever, you would say, I don't know what you are, but I don't think you're a Christian church, right? So every, all Christians practice baptism. That's why Paul can say, uh, and we can still affirm, even despite our disagreements, in Ephesians 4, 5, he says in verse 5 that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now there's something in us, uh, because of the difference between infant baptism and believer's baptism, there's something in us that wants to say, can we... Can we say there's one baptism? I mean, that that seems to me like two different baptisms. Uh, Well, in Paul's day, there probably wasn't any significant disagreement about baptism, right? Because you still had Paul and the apostles around, and if anybody had a question, uh, they could just resolve it, right? This is how we do it. That's not how we do it. Um, But there is still a sense in which we are united not only under one Lord, the Lord Jesus, and not only in one faith, right? Our faith in the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, crucified and risen. But there is still a sense in which there is one baptism among the Christian churches because we all baptize in the name of the one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, it's Christian baptism, right? So um, all Christian churches practice some form of baptism in the name of Jesus, right? So uh, in that sense, baptism is something that unites us, right? You could, if you were to compare any form of Christianity to other religions, most other religions don't practice baptism, but uh, all Christians do. So in one sense, we're united about baptism, but again, it is a significant point of disagreement uh, among Christians as well. I mean, it's it's in the name of most of our churches, right? First Baptist Church or Menden Baptist Church. You know, we we believe it's such an important issue. It's part of how we define ourselves, right? Part of how we've named ourselves. Um, so uh, we think that's significant, right? And there's not only a disagreement over who we baptize. Do we baptize the children of believers? which is paedo-baptism, or do we baptize only people who are making their own profession of faith, right? So believer's baptism. But connected to those, you also have a difference of of, uh, conviction and understanding about the mode of baptism. Do you baptize by immersion in water, or do you baptize by effusion or sprinkling, right? For obvious reasons, if you believe in paedo-baptism, you're probably not going to practice immersion. Because not very many parents are going to bring their child to you as an infant to immerse it in water. Right Now, um, I read a story uh, years ago, if I'm, if I'm getting this right. When, you all know who John Wesley is, right? Um, 
before, I think this was before John Wesley was, was truly converted, I think he would say. But he was already a missionary. He'd come over, I think, to Georgia, which I think was a penal colony at the time. Uh, he'd come over to Georgia as a missionary uh, from England. And um, he, if I remember correctly, he insisted... And so he was in the Anglican Church. They practice infant baptism. He insisted not only on immersion for infants, he insisted on triple immersion in infant baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the, three times. And I, I just don't imagine many people signed up for that, right? Um, so I, I say that to say, if you're, if you're a paedo-baptist, you're probably going to go with uh, sprinkling because it's a whole lot easier to sprinkle an infant with water than to dunk them underwater. Um, but credo-baptists, those who uh, practice believer's baptism, uh, most of us, if not all of us, practice baptism by immersion. Um, and that is not uh, something we just sort of picked up or decided on our own. That is the definition of the word baptism. Um, we've uh, in my Sunday school class, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about uh, as just as part of the things we've been studying, uh, the difference between um, translating a word from one language to another and transliterating a word from one language to another. Uh, we've been talking about it because we were talking about the Messiah and the word Christ and the word Messiah. Those are not English words, right? Messiah is a Hebrew word that we've transliterated, right? And uh, Christ is a Greek word, Christos, that we have essentially transliterated into English. They both mean anointed one, but you don't know that because Christ and Messiah in English don't mean anything. They're not English words. Uh, Baptism is the same kind of thing. And the word baptism is not a word that already existed in English, that functions as a translation for whatever the Greek word is that we translate as baptism. The Greek word is baptizo. Right? So you can hear baptizo. All we did was we took a Greek word and we made it sound English. Now the problem when you do that is that nobody knows what the transliterated word means unless you tell them. Right? It's a little bit like, this is not a perfect comparison, but it's a little bit like what we've done with a lot of Spanish words. Right? Like we didn't translate salsa into an English word. We just took it. Right? And so you either know what salsa is or you don't. But if you, if you haven't eaten it, if you haven't tasted it, if you haven't seen nobody explain it to you, it's not a word that means something else in English. Right? Uh, it's just a Spanish word that we've adopted. And you either know what it means or you don't. Baptism is a Greek word. So we don't know what it means unless somebody explains it to us. But the word baptizo, it means to dip or to immerse. That's just what the word means. So uh, the definition of the word means to immerse. And then obviously the way baptism is practiced, often in the New Testament, uh, implies, uh, if not outright tells us, that uh, baptism happens by immersion because they don't do it, you know, in the city next to a jug of water. They do it down in the river, right? down where there's plenty of water, not just, you know, uh, you can go to the well and draw enough water to sprinkle a dozen people or so. But if you're going to 
baptize an adult, you need a river, right? Or at least a good-sized creek. So um, we believe the biblical pattern of baptism and meaning of the word baptism requires immersion. But those who practice uh, pedo-baptism usually uh, sprinkle. So... um, That's a little bit about the mode, but the most important thing, more important than whether you immerse or sprinkle, is who you're baptizing, right? Um, I can imagine some scenarios where even a credo-baptist might sprinkle somebody because because it was physically impossible to immerse them for some kind of reason, right? I mean, it would be only in rare circumstances, but you could imagine a situation where it's just not possible for us to immerse this person, so we're going to do the best we can, right? Maybe pour some water over their head, maybe a little more than sprinkling. We'll give them a good Baptist pouring, you know, that soaks them real good, depending on the circumstance. But, you know, you can imagine giving up the mode in a certain circumstance if necessary. But there's there's nothing that would change our mind about whether or not we're baptizing a believer or simply the child of a believer. That's, a, that's on another level entirely. So that's, that's the more serious issue. So let's talk about that for a minute. Um, why, now, when, um, and before we dive into that, let me say this. Like I said before, we already all agree on this, and you already know what I'm going to say about this because we're all Baptists. Um, but when I taught this in my class at Full Armor, we were not all Baptists. Uh, I had a, uh, one paedo-Baptist in my class. And so, um, and Full Armor is not a Baptist school, right? It's a non-denominational school. So I did my best to teach both positions as well as I could and show the strengths of both positions and the weaknesses of both positions. And I'm going to try to do the same thing for us because um, it's important for us to know what we believe and why we believe it and also to see why our brothers and sisters who practice pedo-baptism, why they're convinced about that, because, you know, they also read the Bible really carefully, and they're also trying to be faithful. Um, and so we want to, there's a certain humility that we want to have where we can say, I still think you're wrong, but I see where you're coming from. And there are some places where you can poke me and poke my position, and I can say, yeah, I mean, I can't prove with 100% certainty that I'm right. I'm convinced I'm right. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, every position has its weaknesses. So uh, I'm going to try to help us see both sides uh, over tonight and tomorrow. Uh, and so um, to, to sort of help us think about that, there's a proverb, uh, Proverbs 18:17 that I want us to keep in mind. Proverbs 18:17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Right. So if I only taught you the credo-baptist position, if we only talked about, I mean, you guys know it. If I've only talked about the credo-baptist position, then we would all walk away going, well, yeah, obviously, that's the right one. But if we also look at the best arguments people have to offer in favor of paedo-baptism, then we should at least be able to go, well, I can see where they're coming from. You know, and that's that doesn't undermine our own conviction. It just grows us in humility and respect for others. So, um, so what are the arguments in favor of credo baptism of baptizing only believers? 
I'm going to point out the strongest arguments from Scripture and then some of the strongest arguments that I know about from church history. So first from Scripture, uh, the classic passage for Baptists about believers' baptism has to be Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Um, Not only because it's about baptism, but also because it's about missions, and those are two of the things that really uh, drive uh, Baptist convictions and Baptist practice, right? So Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus has died, risen, appeared to his disciples. He gives them his marching orders. He says, I'm the Lord. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's all been given to me. So here's what I'm telling you to do. You go and make disciples of all the nations because I'm not just the God of Israel. I have authority over all the earth. You go to all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them. Baptizing who? Baptizing the people that you make disciples. Uh, Not baptizing everybody. And not baptizing children that disciples have. You baptize the people that you make disciples. So to become a disciple of Jesus means you're now a follower of Jesus. You confess that he's Lord, he's your teacher, he's the boss. You trust him, you're following him, you are now his disciple. The people who you make disciples, Jesus says, those are the people that you baptize and that you then teach to obey me. That's part of what it means to be a disciple, is you're uh, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit publicly identify yourself as belonging to this one God in three persons, and you get taught and increasingly learn over your lifetime to obey all that Jesus has said. So Jesus did not command us to baptize, he did not command us to baptize, uh, again, the children of believers. Uh, He commanded us to baptize those who believe, those who become disciples. Um, Then in the book of Acts, this is exactly what we see take place from the day of Pentecost onward. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit um, uh, uh, has come upon him and the other disciples, and they've been empowered by the Spirit to bear witness. And when uh, he preaches about Jesus being the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament prophecies and how though uh, they they have crucified him, but he was indeed the Messiah. When he says that, Acts 2.37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter says, Repent and be baptized. So who's supposed to be baptized? The people who repent. And the other side of repentance is 
faith, right? You don't, the Bible doesn't always mention them both. When it mentions one, it implies the other. Repent and believe. Be- repentance uh, is, gonna, is turning away from something, but also turning to something. And you can't turn to it if you don't believe, right? And if you believe in Jesus, you're also turning away from sin. So, repent, and all of you who repent, you need to be baptized, and they listened to him, so everyone who received his word, who believed what he said about Jesus, those are the people who were baptized. All right? <clears throat> Same thing happens later, and there are lots of instances of um, conversion and whatnot in the book of Acts. But um, in uh, another one of the really significant ones is in Acts chapter 10, where Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Um, who's a Gentile, and there are many other Gentiles gathered there, and the Holy Spirit has directed Peter to come to this particular place, and he preaches as well, uh, uh, tells them about Jesus, and at the end of the chapter, verse 44, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So who got baptized? The people who heard the word and received the Holy Spirit and believed. It was believers who were baptized. There is no specific mention anywhere in the book of Acts or anywhere in the New Testament of an infant or even a child being baptized. There is no specific instance of that anywhere in the New Testament whatsoever. There's no place where somebody's little girl believed and got baptized. Right? Or where somebody became a believer and they said, can you also baptize my baby? There, there's no instance of that anywhere in the New Testament. All right? So those are the, that's the argument from Scripture. Now, arguments from church history. So examples and, uh, and testimonies uh, from the history of the church about uh, believers' baptism. Justin Martyr who, if I'm remembering correctly, he lived in the 2nd century, so between 1 and 200 A.D. So Jesus was obviously, uh, you know, he was crucified around 30, 33 A.D. The original apostles were active up until maybe 100 A.D. was probably the latest. Uh, The apostle John was the one we think lived the longest, according to church tradition. And, you know, he probably died somewhere around 100 A.D., give or take. So the next generation, 100 to 200 A.D. or or two, um, in there was this guy named Justin Martyr. um, And here's what he said about baptism in the early church. He said, I will also relate the manner in which we dedicated ourselves to God when we had been made new through Christ. So you become a Christian. You're made new through Christ. How do you dedicate yourself to God? He says, here's what we did. As many as are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past. We, the rest of the church, praying and fasting with them. Then they are brought by us where there is water 
and are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves were regenerated. Now, what he means by regenerated there is, you know, maybe a topic for another day. I'm not an expert on how he was using that word there, how he understood what was going on in baptism. But it's clear that who was being baptized here in the second century were those who, he says, were, are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true. And they're undertaking uh, to live accordingly. So that means they're old enough to say, I believe that and I want to live according to that teaching. Those are the people then who are taken to where there's water and are baptized. So that sounds an awful lot like believer's baptism right there in the the early days of the church. Then uh, Tertullian, who I think also uh, taught and wrote and preached during the, that second century between 1 and 200 AD, maybe on the other side of 200 AD a little bit, um, wrote a lot, a lot of things. And he specifically, with Justin Martyr, you could say, okay, well, maybe new Christians were being baptized as believers, but maybe people were already baptizing their babies, their infants, we don't know. Well, okay, maybe. But here's what Tertullian says. Around the same time, maybe a little later, he says, Why should innocent infancy be in such a hurry to come to the forgiveness of sins? Let them come while they are maturing, while they are learning, while they are being taught what it is they are coming to. Let them be made Christians when they have become able to know Christ. So he's talking about baptism. Remember, Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? So he's saying, why would you bring an infant to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins? Right? Why not let them mature and learn and understand what it is they're signing up for through baptism and let them become Christians Baptism being the public profession that you're now a Christian, let them become be made Christians when they've been become able to know Christ. So Tertullian's comment shows that there were people beginning to practice the baptism of infants, but he was arguing against it, which makes it sound like it's kind of a new thing. Right? Then um, a church historian named Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a just world-class uh, church historian, who, uh, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, at, toward the end of his life, he became Eastern Orthodox. I think before that he was either, I can't remember if he was Catholic or maybe Anglican or something like that, but I, he was not a Baptist, I don't think. So he's not, I don't know that he was a credo-Baptist um, but here's what he says about baptism in the early church. He says, infant baptism rested on biblical warrants or biblical evidence that were somewhat ambiguous. The story of Jesus blessing the children in Mark 10:13 to 16 and, and similar places. You know, let the little children come to me. Uh, the formula in the book of Acts, according to which a household was said to have been baptized. So people, people, Baptists say, well, they baptized the whole house. Maybe they were children. Maybe they were infants. We don't know. The analogy between circumcision in the Old Testament and infant baptism in the New. So circumcision and baptism are, are compared in the New Testament. Who was circumcised? Eight-month-old males in the Old Testament. So why not baptize infants as well? Whatever, he says, whatever its origins or its spread during the second century, 
The first incontestable evidence for the practice appeared around the end of that century in the writings of Tertullian. So he's saying the first evidence we have of anyone baptizing infants does not show up until Tertullian is arguing against it near the end of the second century. So you have, from the time of Jesus to the time when Tertullian is writing this, a hundred and let's say 150 to 170 years from Jesus to that time where we have no evidence of anyone baptizing infants. That's pretty significant. Um, one more example is Adoniram Judson, who was a Congregationalist missionary. The first, he ended up being the first Baptist missionary from America, um, but he wasn't a Baptist when he left as a missionary. While he was on the boat, he was studying baptism. He was reading the Greek New Testament, um, and he was studying the issue of baptism because he knew he was going to meet up with William Carey, who was a Baptist over in India, and he wanted to be prepared, I guess, uh, and you know, be able to defend his position except that he couldn't, and so he became a credo-baptist, and he had to write back home to the Baptist churches in America and say, surprise, you have a missionary, I could use some money because my congregational church is not going to support me anymore because I don't hold to their teaching. I don't practice infant baptism anymore. So, um, so there's sort of a, an array of examples uh, in favor of uh, credo-baptism from um, church history. All right, now, quickly, I'll give you uh, some arguments for the other side. All right, so how do paedo-baptists argue from Scripture against credo-baptism? Right, we're not going to go into detail because we'll look at their position in detail next time. But I want to give you how they would push back real quick this time. We've already seen a little bit of this already. Um, again, in Acts, from Scripture in Acts, they would say, what about all those household baptisms? You tell me there were no children included in that? I mean, somebody believes in their whole household is baptized with them. Surely there's some children, maybe even some infants involved in that. Uh, the, the passage that uh, Pelican mentioned from Mark 10, 13 to 16 about letting the children come to Jesus. Um, that's one that they would use. Uh, they would say, you know, if you're not baptized, I mean, what better way to let children come to Jesus than to baptize them in his name? Uh, and then uh, one passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 14, Paul is dealing with um, marriages where people are unequally yoked. as a believer and an unbeliever who are married. Um, and he's saying, if that's the situation you're already in, <clears throat> don't divorce. Don't split up because one of you is Christian and one of you is not. And he's given them reasons why. And one of the reasons is this, 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. He says, For the unbelieving husband <clears throat> is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Okay, now there's a lot in that verse that is not easy to explain. But you could see how a, a paedo-baptist would say, uh, you know, in what sense is the child of a believer holy if not through baptism? And all that that implies, that they've been set apart for Jesus. So those are some ways that they would push back from Scripture. And then uh, they've got a, a few arguments from church history that they could push back with us as well. Right? We've got, we got a pretty strong case, right, from Justin Martyr and Tertullian and from uh, Pelican and guys like Adoniram Judson and... Um, but 
here's what they might come back and say. Okay, so we've got no evidence of infant baptism before 200 AD. Okay, well, that's an argument from silence, which is not a super strong argument. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. We just don't know that it did. There are probably a lot of things we don't know about what was going on in those first 200 years of church history. But here's what we do know. Since, let's say, 400 AD, so this is like around the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, St. Augustine is writing and whatnot around this time, around 400 AD, roughly, all the way up until about 1500 AD, so a thousand years of church history, Infant baptism was practiced almost universally in the church. There were no people, hardly, baptizing believers from 480 to 1580. Part of that is because of the rise of the the Roman Catholic Church, which uh, dominated all of the Western world, just about. And the Roman Catholic Church practiced infant baptism, and so virtually everybody practiced Uh, infant baptism. There were some pockets of people here and there who would resist, and uh, especially around the time of the Reformation, uh, there were the Anabaptists who started practicing believers' baptism. They were persecuted for it, um, often put to death for it. Um, But most Christians for a thousand years, almost all Christians that we know about on the planet for a thousand years were practicing infant baptism. You're saying all of them were wrong for a thousand years? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. But that is, you know, but that's a that's that's a tough pill to swallow, right? That's that's not an easy claim to make. And then from 1500 till today, it's still true that a large number, and I don't know if it's a majority or not, because the numbers of Christians are are changing dramatically right now. There's a lot of Pentecostal uh, churches growing in, I think, like South America and Africa. Um, but there's also a lot of Anglicans in Africa, and they practice paedo-baptism. So I, I want to say majority, but I might be wrong. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that for sure. But if not a majority, a large number of Christians today still practice infant baptism. I'm pretty sure that we're in the minority. In other words, in terms of how we practice baptism. So, you got to swallow that too, right? Um, and then, um, one other thing they might say is, they might say, well, um, many of the early Christians did not become Christians until they were adults, right? I mean, there were no, there were no already baptized Christians before Acts 2, I mean, Acts 2 is when they started baptizing people who heard and believed the gospel. Um, So, of course, it was only adults being baptized in Acts because people were hearing the gospel for the first time. But what about that second and third and fourth generation of Christians? I mean, it seems like it was pretty quick that they started baptizing infants. And those people were not that far removed from the apostles. I mean, surely they had a good reason for what they were doing. So you see how there are significant arguments on each side. And I don't think anybody on either side is going to change the other one's mind. right? But you can see kind of where they're coming from. Right? Um, but uh, as Baptists, right, and just me personally, I think the, 
the weight of the evidence is on our is on the side of credo baptism. I mean, it's on the side of believers' baptism. Um, it is not a comfortable thing to say that I think you know most Christians for the last fifteen hundred years have gotten baptism wrong. I don't like to say that, but I that's what I believe, and I think that's possible and plausible. Um, it's not, a, you know, how you practice baptism and who you baptize is not a central doctrine, like we said. So I'm not saying that, they, that none of those people were Christians. But I do think they got that wrong. And, you know, once an error takes hold, it's really hard to get loose of it. Um, you know, maybe part of the reason why not many people practiced believer's baptism after infant baptism took hold is because when they did try, people killed them for it. Yeah. So you have to have a pretty strong conviction about baptism to be willing to die for for how you're baptized. I mean, not just for I believe in Jesus, but I also believe that Jesus said I should have been baptized once I became a disciple and not before that. I mean, that's be willing to die for that is pretty significant, right? So, uh, anyway, that, that's uh, the best case I can make uh, in this span of time for credo baptism. And then next time, I'll do the best job I can to take up the pedo baptist side and show their strongest arguments and then how we counter those. So, uh, any thoughts or comments or questions?